Galatians, the third chapter. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'll be reading the entire chapter. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the spirit of the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it yet be in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as of you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female. For ye all are one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. As far as the reading of God's word. Looking this morning at uh, verses 13 and 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every man, excuse me, is every one that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. My message to you this morning is that Jesus Christ was the greatest sinner who ever lived. Because 
among other things, of James chapter 2, verse 10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend at one point, he is guilty of all. If we look carefully at what that says and compare it to Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The text says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Well, our first question has to be, what is the curse of the law? The law refers to God's law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments. Therefore, the curse of the law is really the curse of God. The one who violates the law becomes at once the subject of the wrath of the lawgiver. So let's make no mistake. God hates sin. He punishes sinners. We know that. But he's also perfect love, and he loves his people. So how can we reconcile those two? I mean, if there could be any method by which holiness and purity could have been maintained without a curse, you can be assured that the God of love would not have permitted the curse. The curse is necessary. It is, in its very essence, it's necessary for at least two reasons. One is the preservation of order in the universe, and second is the manifestation of the holiness of God. God's perfect justice requires that sin must be punished. You know, people can wink at sin, make jokes about it, harden their hearts and take pleasure in it, and want you to jump in with them, but never think that God is that way. God has written warnings in his word which plainly inform us how terribly he's provoked by sin. Like, for example, in Psalm 50, he said, Beware ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver you. Beware ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver you. Hebrews 10.31 says, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So God is saying, don't think you're getting away with your evil. It won't be long that you're going to pay for breaking my just and holy law. If the Bible teaches anything, there's a quote from Spurgeon, if the Bible teaches anything at all, it is this. God will not allow sin to go unpunished. God will not allow sin to go unpunished. He warns at first, and he's long-suffering, and gives many, many warnings. But sooner or later... If you resist him and you keep in your sin, you refuse to come to Christ, he bears his sword for your execution. Remember when we've read about in the Bible when the floods came and God said, I'm going to just destroy every living creature that walks or creeps on the earth. And he did, except for Noah and his family. The windows of heaven were open and and all flesh was swept away except those few that were hidden in the ark which God's covenant mercy, they were of the covenant even though this was long before it was given to Abraham they were of a covenant line uh, the the covenant line Uh, and his covenant mercy had prepared them millions, I mean it's 
we can't conceive of this. We think, you know, we think of great disasters and mass, you know, ships that sunk with, you know, thousand people on board and who died and 9/11 and and you know earthquakes that we hear about in Indonesia that killed 50,000 people and 100,000 people and the tsunami in in uh, Japan recently and but they're nothing compared to the flood that killed everybody in the world except for the people in the ark you know they did killed off all the news media too so they couldn't report it which <laughs> you know Lord knows what he's doing. So down down in time, here's Abraham. And he's standing at his tent door. And the sky is red, but it's not the sun. Sheets of flames coming down from heaven. Showers of fire. Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, two cities that gave themselves to, to homosexuality and idol worship and violence and murder and other things. They, they received the curse of God. They were utterly consumed. I was reading recently they, where they think, by the Dead Sea, where they think Sodom and Gomorrah are, the, the remains, they've never exactly been able to pinpoint them, but they've found... Uh, blackened rocks. They can't really explain why these rocks are, are blackened. But we know. Uh, so that's some of the things that God does. You know, we, that's, if, we, if we were there and saw this, we'd, we'd learn what the curse of God is. Uh, you lose his blessings. He, he's long-suffering, but at some point he just as I said, bears the sword of execution. Uh, but these people didn't, they lost their lives, but they remained conscious. They're conscious today. That's the thing. They're conscious today. I mean, if, it, if people who believe, well, you know, I can sin, and when I die, that's, it's just nothing. That's after that. I'm just not conscious anymore. Well, they're sadly mistaken, and they're going to find out how sadly mistaken they are. But it'll be too late then. Can you imagine just being as awake as you are now, aware of what's going on around you, and it being a horrible torment, and knowing that it will never end? You have no hope, and you can't kill yourself. You can't stop it. It just goes on and on and on and on. I mean, we can't really wrap our minds around that, but believe it and do everything to avoid it, which of course is, is faith in Jesus Christ as your as your Savior and repent of your sins. But that's what God's word promises is going to happen to those who harden their hearts against Christ and refuse to come in. It's the fruit of the curse of the law. Now the second question that I wanted to get to this morning that these verses suggest is who are under the curse? Of course we've talked a little bit about it. We talked about these terrible sinners in Sodom and Gomorrah and, and, and the, the people pre-flood. Romans 3.23 tells us who is under the curse. It says everyone, everybody. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So who deserves to be under the curse of God? Everybody who's ever sinned. Does that include everybody here? I think so. Me too. But it even goes further than that. Galatians 3.10, 
which we just read, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things, all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now, what does it mean to be under the law? To uh, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law. There are people who choose to be under the law, who want to be judged by the law. Now, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Well, people who try to get to heaven under their own power, under their own good deeds. Uh, I, I read it. It's kind of a silly analogy, but it, it's you know there's a lot to it. It says trying to get to heaven by doing good deeds is like trying to uh, stand on the shore of California and swim to Hawaii. No, it's not going to happen. You know, uh, it's just not going to happen. Or as Whitfield said, good works, good works. I'd, I'd rather try to climb to heaven on a rope of sand than depend on my good works. So following a list of rules, doing good deeds, regular church attendance or giving money to charity or volunteering or not drinking alcohol or not smoking or your list might include doing your best never to lie or to cheat or to steal. Whatever you think you have to do to not go to heaven, I mean, excuse me, to not go to hell and what you think you have to do to go to heaven, you don't understand what the Bible teaches. You don't know what the gospel is, why Christ came, who he is. Try to get to heaven under your own power, and that is impossible. You've chosen to be under the law. If you've chosen to be, ju- you've then chosen to be judged by it, and you've chosen the curse, because all that the law can do is curse you because you haven't fulfilled its commandments. As many as are of the works of the law are under this curse, for it is written, "Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them." So it's a foolish thing to try to go to heaven just by doing good things. Of course, we we are to do good things, but the good things that we are to do are not to go to heaven. It's because God has already chosen us to go to heaven, and we want to please him. Uh, And we want to live in the way that he wants us to live. So repent of that, and and what you need to do is be willing to be saved by grace and not by good works. Well, we said here that we read that Christ was made a curse for us. So the third question this morning is, how was Christ made a curse for us? Well, he was our substitute. Again, I'll quote from Spurgeon on this. He said, the essence of Christianity lies in the doctrine of substitution. In fact, I would broaden that and say the essence of the Bible is the doctrine of substitution. The way of salvation is by Christ becoming a substitute for guilty man. And of course, the Old Testament talked about it, taught what substitution means. So people would recognize when Christ came that he could substitute for their sins. So the Old Testament taught the people that it takes a blood sacrifice for sins. And that goes back to Genesis, doesn't it? When Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with, a, with leaves, fig leaves, supposedly, and... Uh, God said, no, not good enough. I'm going to cover you with animal skins. There has to be shedding of blood to cover sin. And that's repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. So people would get it, some people anyway, uh, God's people, when Christ came, that he would be the the substitute and the uh, 
the one who dies for sin, the shedding of his blood. So Spurgeon said the essence of Christianity lies in the doctrine of substitution. The way of salvation is by Christ becoming a substitute for a guilty man. Sin is the curse, and God must curse it. He must punish men for committing it. But Christ, the Son of God, became a man and suffered in his own person the curse which was due to the sons of men. So by this substitutionary offering, God, having been just in punishing sin, could then extend his mercy toward those who believe in his Son, the substitute. And that's the gospel. If you don't believe the Son is the substitute for your sins, then you are saying, I want to be responsible. I will take the punishment for my sins, which is a very, very foolish thing to do. Now, how was he made a curse? Note note the word Christ was made a curse. Made a curse. Christ was not a curse in himself. In his person, he was spotlessly innocent. Nothing of sin belonged personally to him. So in him was no sin. God made him to be sin for us. That's why I said he was the greatest sinner. Not that he ever committed sin, but the sins of all of his people, of millions and millions of people, were put upon him. So he bore more sin than any human being ever has, wherever it will. God made him to be sin for us, the apostle adds, who knew no sin. Christ didn't know any sin. He didn't have any sin. He never sinned. But God made him to be sin for us that we might be be made, the word again, the righteousness of God in him. That comes from 2 Corinthians 5. He was made to be sin for us, not on his own account, not with any view to himself, but wholly because he loved us and chose to put himself in the place which we ought to have occupied. He voluntarily undertook to be the covenant head of his people, to be their representative, and as their representative to bear the curse which was due to his people. You know, when I told you that Jesus Christ was the greatest sinner who ever lived, now I hope you understand why I said that. It's a shocking statement, but when you think about it, it's true that he bore more sin, not that he ever personally sinned, but he bore more sin. In fact, those aren't my words. Those are Martin Luther's words. What he meant was not, again, that not Jesus never sinned, but the sins of his people were so piled upon him that in his Father's eyes, Christ became all the thieves that ever lived or ever will live of his people and all the liars that his people are and all the lies that we have ever told or will tell of all his people and all the murders and all the adultery and everything else. And he was punished for those sins of his people. That's how he was made a curse for us. The sins of his people, all of them, all of your sins that you have committed and that you will ever commit were actually laid on Christ, not in some theoretical fog. They were actually laid on Christ. Remember the words of the apostle, he made him to be sin for us. In God the Father's eyes, Christ had uncountable, at least to us, sins laid upon him actually. And let me look at another passage. This is from Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, iniquity of sin. And another from Isaiah 53, 11. He shall bear their iniquities. 
course, Isaiah 53 is such a, a tremendous chapter looking ahead to Christ and written hundreds of years before Christ came. And yet, it's hard to look at that and not see Christ. The sins of God's people were lifted from off them and imputed, is a, the word uh, credited, if you will, to Christ, to Christ. And their sins were looked upon by the Father as if Christ had committed them. See, God the Father didn't look at Christ and say, well, all the sins of his people have been put on him. It was more than that. He looked at Christ and said, it's as though he committed them. He was regarded as if he had been the sinner. He actually stood in the sinner's place. You know, there's a, a little story, and it's kind of cool, where uh, a judge uh, is sitting on his bench in the courtroom, and the next defendant is brought in and accused of uh, a terrible crime. And he looks up, and it's his mother. And she's guilty. There's no question about it. So what's he going to do? Well, he's a judge. He can't just let her off because well, you're my mom, so I'm not going to find you innocent even though clearly you're guilty. So he sentences her, and he gives her the harshest sentence possible, which he's supposed to do. That's the, 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 he gives her the sentence that's required. And then he takes off his robes, and he steps down from the bench. And he, he stands there and accepts the, the punishment for her. And that's the comparison of what Christ did for us. God gave us the harshest punishment, the one we deserve, death. And then he sent his son to step, come down and take the punishment for us so we don't have it. We don't understand Christ's anguish after this never to be comprehended. Uh, It said he spent an eternity in hell. Uh, uh, Confession refers to that. The Apostles' Creed refers to that. But God only knows what his griefs were. The last penalty of sin was death, and therefore Christ died. He gave his life. No man takes it from me, he said. He gave it up voluntarily. His side was pierced, and the blood and water flowed forth, and his disciples laid his body in the tomb. And then he was first numbered with transgressors, Scripture says, and then he was numbered with the dead. And Christ bared the curse. God didn't spare him, but smited him. As he would have smitten us, laid his full vengeance on him, and Christ suffers everything. The consequences are that he redeemed us from the curse of the law. As many as Christ died are forever free from the curse of the law. So when the law comes to curse a child of Christ, he can say, you have nothing on me. You have nothing on me. Yes, I've sinned. You know, when, I remember reading somebody, one of the great Christian writers, probably a Puritan, said, uh, Satan will come to you and whisper in your ear, oh, you are a sinner. You have sinned so much. How can you even call yourself a Christian? How can you go to church and, and pretend you're so holy and, and righteous? You know what a vile black sinner you are. And the answer to that is, hey, Satan, don't talk to me about it. Go talk to my Redeemer. 
He's the one that you have to deal with. Don't deal with me about it. I'm saved by Christ. You know, if you've got a problem with it, go talk to them, to the man who did it, Christ Himself. He cursed Christ. The, 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 the Satan and the, and the sin cursed Christ instead of instead of us. Can you curse twice for the same offense? No. The law is silenced. God's law is not so unrighteous as demand that you be punished twice for your sins. If you were if you were committed a murder and you were found guilty and you were executed and somehow you came back to life, they couldn't put you on trial again. Not even in our messed up legal system. They couldn't put you on trial again. You've already been judged and found guilty, and the, the punishment was was given to you. And if you if you somehow God resurrected you, you know, if if Lazarus uh, in the New Testament had committed murder and been executed, and Christ rose him, rose him from the dead, the law couldn't touch him again. Well, that's exactly our position in Christ. Law can't touch us again because Christ's already paid the penalty. We've been resurrected, if you will. Our souls have been resurrected as clean in Christ. All that God can demand of a believing sinner, Christ has already paid, and there's no voice in heaven or on earth that that can accuse a soul that believes in Christ. You were in debt, but a friend paid your debt. You were under a curse, a friend took that curse from you and paid, paid it. No demand now can ever be made against you. It doesn't matter that you weren't the one who paid it. It is paid and you have the receipt. You have the Holy Ghost in your heart. The Holy Spirit testifying that you are a child of His. And all believers have that. So, Christ bore it. No, I haven't borne it. I haven't been to hell. I haven't suffered the full wrath of God. But Christ has suffered that wrath for me and for you. And you are as clear as if you paid the debt to God himself and if you personally had suffered that wrath. So that's the rock on which we lay the foundation of our eternal comfort. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. What an interesting word, ransom for many. Professor John Murray says in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, quote, The language of redemption is the language of purchase, and more specifically of ransom. And ransom is the securing of a release by the payment of a price. We know what a ransom is. Somebody's kidnapped and a ransom demand was made. You know, you pay, the kidnapper says, you pay me, you know, a million dollars and I'll, I'll let this loved one of yours free. Otherwise, they're kidnapped and, you know, you don't know what I might do to them. That's a ransom. 1 Corinthians 7.23 says, you're bought with a price. The price, of course, is Christ's death. Ransom is what is demanded. Our now, who kidnapped us? Our sins. Our sins kidnapped us, held us in captivity. Our only hope was to be ransomed, for somebody to pay the ransom for our freedom. Christ paid it for his people. 
But if you deny him, you're choosing to stay with your kidnapper. And that kidnapper will kill you. So think of it that way. Those people who won't come to Christ are kidnapped by their sins. And the ransom, they will not accept the idea that Christ paid the ransom for them. And so they're choosing to stay with a kidnapper. And that kidnapper is a murderer and will kill them. They think they can talk the kidnapper out of killing them. Not going to happen. Christ suffered what we ought to have suffered in our persons, as I said over and over again. The sins that were ours were made his. He was punished as a sinner. And then he rose again from the dead to bring in the righteousness which covers us now. He brought it in in the promise of eternal life. You have but to trust Christ and you'll live. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. I remember talking to a man and uh, I was uh, passing out tracts and talking to people on Bourbon Street in New Orleans one evening when we were there. I couldn't... St- we were there for a business meeting, and Bourbon Street, if you've ever been there, is one of the most disgusting places, at least I've ever seen. And I saw these masses of humanity, and I just, I said to Allison, we got to do something here. And there was a little group, of, um, they had a cross set up right in the middle of Bourbon Street. There's no, no traffic, there's a lot of Bourbon Street, so it's just all pedestrian. And a cross set up, like a I don't know, eight, ten-foot cross so people could see, and they were passing out tracks. And so I asked if I could join them. And uh, Allison and I joined them, and we thought this is a much better use of our time on Bourbon Street. <laughs> this is an awful place. And uh, one man, I remember talking to a, a guy, um, you know, biker type, and he says, uh, he says, man, he said, Christ can't save me. He said, you don't, you don't know what I've done. He, you know, he wouldn't tell me, and I didn't ask, but probably something real horrible. And he said, I'm just too, too much of a sinner. He said, I'd like to be saved. And I said, if you'd like to be saved, then God is drawing you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be interested. And uh, I don't know if I've ever got through if they ever, who knows, we'll maybe know in heaven someday, but uh, scattering the seeds. But, uh, you know, he wanted to stay with his kidnapper. I wish I'd known that analogy. I could talk to him about it. So the moment... Anyone believes whether they're, whatever they've done in their life, God doesn't see those sins anymore. He sees them as an innocent person and regards his sins as being laid on Christ and punished in Jesus as he died on the cross. So if you believe in Christ, you might be the worst person that's ever walked on this earth. God will look at you as, as pure, clean. You trust Christ, you are delivered. Acts 13, 39, He that believeth is justified from all things. And in Acts 16, 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. For Mark 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. Believe and live. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, I guess because it strikes my heart so so closely, is Mark 9.24. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Because we all have this corrupt, sinful flesh that isn't redeemed yet, even when we're believers in Christ, and it, it drags us down and it gives us doubts and you know makes us sin, causes us to sin, and and you say. My faith isn't very strong. 
I mean, I believe, but I'm so weak in my faith. Pray that, Mark 16, 16. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Mark 9, 24. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And if you do that sincerely, repenting of your sins, He won't refuse you. His word is, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. It's found in John 6. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Believe and live. Let's go to him and pray. Father, if there's any in the sound of my voice that do not believe, that do not have saving faith, Lord, we pray, Father, that Thou would give them repentance of their sins and trust in Christ alone as their substitute, as their sal- as for their salvation, as their Savior, Father.